Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We're mostly concerned with great powers. And great powers, according to offensive realism, they want to acquire more power. And why do they want to do this? They want to do this because of the radically uncertain nature of the world. We can never know for sure what another state is going to do. And therefore, it is best to maximize your own power so as to be able to defend your national interests. Mm -hmm. This is another key point that realists emphasize a lot, is national interest. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. This is In Liberty and Health, episode number 160. I swear to God, the numbers just keep flying by. Today, <laughs> I have Zachary Yost with me. Zach, how you doing, man? I'm great. How are you doing today? Excellent. Very, very uh, excited to talk with you today. So um, I think I had originally got, or you kind of came onto my radar when I was having a back and forth with uh, Tho Bishop on Twitter, and he made me aware of your writing. And uh, I had listened to a couple podcasts with you. I read a few of your articles. And um, yeah, you're very eloquent. You're very well educated. You're very, very well read. So um, I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you today. But um, I guess let's do first things first. Give an introduction of yourself, what you do, who you are, where you're at, all that good stuff. Yeah, so uh, I'm a freelance writer. Um, I write for a variety of places like the Mises Wire. Um, I also do some work for various uh, sort of pro-liberty, conservative, libertarian think tanks in the DC area. I've written for the um, uh, American uh, Institute for Economic Research, uh, places like that. Um, so yeah, I also uh, co-host the War Economy and State podcast with uh, Ryan McMakin at Mises too. I'm in Pittsburgh, like yourself. Uh, go West Sylvania. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So um, what uh, kind of got you into all this stuff? Because I'm guessing you're probably, well, actually, I don't even want to guess your age. I want, I want to thank you around <laughs> my age, but I could be wrong. Um, I just turned 28 last month. So, um, you know, that's usually a, a good barometer. Like most people our age, I would like to believe we're brought into libertarianism through like Ron Paul. That wasn't necessarily me. But, um, you know, what kind of got you to be in this sort of realm of like libertarian politics? 
Sure. Yeah. So I'm 29. <laughs> okay. All right. So I was right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, pretty close there. Um, yeah, Ron Paul played a big role his 2012 campaign. I had been, I think I began identifying as a libertarian uh, a little bit before I sort of uh, discovered Ron Paul, but he sort of led me into a whole lot of other uh, things. Like he's how I discovered like the Mises Institute and things like that. Um, uh, I had just been a sort of a nerd about politics for a long time, sometime around when I was in eighth grade, I guess. So I guess actually the 2008 election is when I really started to, I became like a news junkie. It, it's mm -hmm. sort of funny when I was raised, I was sort of sheltered. I wasn't allowed to be in the room when my mom was watching the weather because like she, she didn't want me to see the horrors of the world on mm -hmm. the local news. And then I just sort of became a news junkie, would watch like four or five hours of the news every day after school. And that just sort of got me into stuff. Um, I've always been sort of, uh, you know, a bit of a nerd and everything. And my intellectual development, just sort of evolution, uh, I began identifying as a libertarian in my senior year of high school, um, was involved in Students for Liberty in college and all that. Then I worked in DC and uh, my views have continued to evolve, I'd say uh, sort of in a more conservative direction. I prefer uh, like identifying as a liberal, but libertarians also fine. It sort of labels no one knows what they mean anymore, which is problematic. But uh, yeah, that's how I got started, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I kind of have this debate a little bit with people online. Um, in fact, I was actually um, going back and forth with uh, Robbie Martin, if you know who Robbie Martin is. Uh, no, I'm not um, familiar. His sister's Abby Martin, who runs like Empire Files. They run Media Roots Radio together. Um <clears throat> He was asking me about like political labels and how aren't these certain people consider them like why don't they consider themselves far right? And he said, Oh yeah, if there was somebody like this on the left, then they'd be considered far left. And yeah, it's almost like things the political compass doesn't have quite the same significance that it used to have anymore. Where like um, you know, so many people on the left have called everybody far right that now it's like, well, what does that really mean? And what separates a far right person from a regular right winger? And then a lot of people on the right, I feel like it's less so, but it could just be my bias that like everybody on the left is far left. And I couldn't tell you like where a standard Democrat is like, yeah, <laughs> like who, who would you define as like your standard run of the mill Democrat? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it depend a lot on on age. Mm -hmm. um, because it's sort of like, I know people here in Western Pennsylvania, some of them have been Democrats their entire life and now just vote straight R. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, so it sort of uh, changes a lot. I mean, younger people are like Bernie Sanders supporters. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, yeah, I think it depends on age, especially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, to, to kind of echo your point that you were saying a little bit there earlier when you were getting into politics, um, I always consider myself a narco-capitalist at heart, but um, as I get older, I begin to realize how valuable culture and how valuable, at least to me, the socially conservative side of culture, how important that is in my life. Um, I just got married last month. And yes, congratulations. Bye. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um to me, that seems very, very important for the values that you and I both share and would like to see 
um, embraced wholly. Um, is that kind of how you saw things and why you decided to kind of lean in a little bit more to the conservative direction? Yeah, so um, I think uh, part of it, uh, my journey, I suppose, when I was, uh, I mean, I was raised sort of very, like I went to a private Christian school, oh. very evangelical, all 12 years, <laughs> um, uh, and whatnot. And I think, so in my college rebellious phase, um, <laughs> I mean, I did. I would say I wasn't that rebellious. I mean, it's all relative. I mean, right. I, became ag I became agnostic for a while. I, I'm no longer agnostic, but I, w when I first like really, yeah, I became like an ANCAP and everything, which I don't really consider myself anymore. Um, uh, I was very much like, what are all these? You know, I was very much a nap kind of person, you know, uh, just well, what does it matter what anyone's doing as long as they're not aggressing and everything? Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, I just, uh, it's for, for a whole variety of reasons. Intellectual influences I had, um, mm -hmm. especially I uh, spent about a semester and a half in a, a PhD program at Catholic University of America in political theory. I, I dropped out, which is a long story, but that was sort of a transformational experience. And yeah, I would just say, um, I think the emphasis changed from liberty being like the highest end to liberty just being an important aspect of uh, living a good life, but it's not the end all be all of everything. <clears throat> yeah, no, I think that's a uh, kind of reasonable thing. Um, so where were you and what kind of were you thinking about when Trump came to prominence? And I just want to kind of give a quick, a quick background. Like I was very pro Trump at the beginning, but my feelings really changed once I saw kind of like the spending, the gun control. And then later on, when I started to dig into more foreign policy, I noticed that he really, he talked a good game, but it seemed like he really faltered on a lot of points. And yes, he wasn't as bad as Hillary Clinton. I think everybody in the world <laughs> would agree with that. But um, like the drone strikes and some of the foreign policy stuff, I, I, it just seemed like we didn't get what was promised. I understand, you know, he's a, he was a politician at that point. But I'm um, like Milo Yiannopoulos was somebody that really brought me into the fold and same deal with Stefan Molyneux. So like these culturally right wing guys had a huge influence on my thinking initially. But um, it, it took me a while, but I changed my mind on the way that I looked at things. So um, I'm kind of curious how you saw the Trump era, because this really seemed to like shape the way that a lot of people kind of look at politics today, because he really did change the landscape. Right. Yeah. So I didn't vote in 2016. I was, uh, you know, very obnoxious non-voter. Um, <laughs> but, but I, um, I was in, I was living in DC and I moved back at the very end of October, actually, of um, mm -hmm. 2016. So I was back here in Pennsylvania and I'd spent a week back here um, earlier at the beginning of October. Mm -hmm. And I, I must admit, I went from just like, oh, they're both awful to like, so basically sort of rooting for Trump mm -hmm. um, in part because, I mean, so many people in Western Pennsylvania were rooting for Trump and the way people reacted to Trump supporters really pissed me off. Mm -hmm. uh, I was sort of like, uh, 
you know that's that's like my family are talking about <laughs> right uh, dude yeah I, I completely feel that because i've um, we were shooting the shit off air and i'm an auto mechanic right one of the dudes i used to work with was literally one of pennsylvania's biggest donors to trump right and, and mechanics don't make six figures a year this dude donated yeah ass loads of money to trump right and that's because he felt he represented him and it was so funny to see the media freak out and this is what's always frustrated me is that like there's stuff you could knock him for but all the stuff that you could the left like breezed right past it and just say oh he's a racist homophobic russia like all, all the silliest stuff that didn't even matter was the stuff they got knocked for so i'm sorry to interrupt but i i completely agree with you and i feel the yeah. exact same way so in 2016 i uh, like it was an enjoyable night, uh, the election <laughs> night, even though I didn't vote yeah. for him because it was like, Haha, take that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know what to expect at all. And I mean, um, in some, I mean, uh, so foreign policy, I think, was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, mm -hmm. And he made many, many horrible, horrible staffing decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, part of the, the, the issue that anyone faces is that the national security uh, establishment, the blob as it's called, is so massive and so established and the alternatives, which might be called the realist and restraint coalition is so small mm -hmm. that, I mean, uh, they'd really have to be scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, to, even have a skeleton crew, as it were, mm -hmm. manning the bureaucracy, were they to, were whoever, to try, want an alternative foreign policy. Because there's lots of documentation of how the bureaucracy just ignored Trump, even when he tried to do good things. Mm -hmm. um, one, uh, I, I, so I was, uh, I thought all of the Russia stuff was nonsense and mm -hmm. i thought that the impeachment thing was just obviously a shot to get rid of him um mm -hmm. that vindman fellow is outrageous alexander vindman a perfect example of the issues um with the national security bureaucracy and i think um in in one congressional testimony he was like like the president was going against what we said as policy. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, who, who's um, running the ship here? <laughs> yeah, and um, so that, I mean, it, he he made mistakes, um, lots of them when it comes to foreign policy, but his instincts, I think, were better. Um, towards the end, I mean, so I did vote for him in 2020. And part of that was... I had some optimism. I had heard from people I trust that Trump had some better people lined up in the foreign policy space, and some I had seen already. Um, William Ruger, who used to be uh, uh, a vice president of policy at the Charles Koch Institute, where I had worked previously, mm -hmm. and I know is a very solid fellow, he was nominated to be the ambassador to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, and so that I thought was a really good sign. And then uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor was appointed to some position and was told, you know, get us out of Afghanistan. And uh, really all that came to naught. Everything fell off the table when Trump lost and uh, went nuts and everything. Um, so I 
uh, am not enthusiastic about him for 2024. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think of it this way. Um, so I'm a very big fan of Machiavelli, who is the intellectual sort of political theory school I come from, I guess you could say, views Machiavelli very differently than lots of other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't th- like Murray Rothbard said Machiavelli was a preacher of evil. I don't think that's true. Um, but uh, I think of <laughs> Trump, uh, Mach- Machiavelli is this very good example, basically, of how sometimes people, uh, the prince should basically use certain people. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't remember all the names, but um, uh, the one, this one Italian, basically warlord, <laughs> uh, uh, name is escaping me at the moment but he conquered this city and he had basically this rabid bloodthirsty you know commander and he put that commander in charge of basically uh basically cleaning up everything mm-hmm. getting rid of all the people who might cause trouble and everything and this guy did that for a little bit uh, uh cesare borgia that's his mm-hmm. name i think um unless i'm confusing him then he came back and was like had the guy arrested and executed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so he sort of killed two birds with one stone uh, in that he got all the dirty work done mm-hmm. and then disposed of his tool. And I think that's sort of my, <laughs> my view of Trump. Uh, some people now who supported Trump before are sort of like, oh, what a mistake. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm not happy with lots of stuff he has done but i'm also not an idealist especially Mm -hmm. in politics and um i think he provided a very very useful function in shaking things up and now that his function is done (laughs) uh he should be discarded of is more (laughs) or less (laughs) how i would put things in uh you know very uh you know just open an open way um i'm very much a ron DeSantis fan mm-hmm. um but where trump i mean I, it's not like i would rule out supporting trump under certain circumstances it depends mm-hmm. what the alternative is and things right. like that i mean this go, going back to the ancap days uh, it was always much oh uh, the, the lesser of two evils is still evil and i've my my basically political morality, how I view political morality is completely changed. And I think that um, uh, you are morally required that, okay, so hopefully, hopefully this isn't getting too much uh, off track or into the weeds here. No, but, not at all, good. Um, so this is why I call myself like a Neo-Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. Machiavelli and the Prince says that sometimes you must do evil to do good. And I did not come up with this myself. Uh, Klaus Rinn, uh, who just who recently retired from Catholic mm-hmm. University and whose work I recommend to everyone, he argues that Machiavelli got it wrong. You can't do evil to do good. So what, what Machiavelli called evil under the ideas of conventional morality is in fact not evil. It is what's morally required in the situation. And this is different than moral relativism, um, but it is a different way of looking at things. And it's 
very unpleasant at times. But uh, I'd say that uh, that's what morality requires of us in uh, politics, and especially when things are in abnormal situations, crises and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, because I know you and I had a little bit of a back and forth. And um <clears throat> It was over uh, Dr. Oz, and not that I ever, you know, whenever it comes to political disagreements, I never, ever take stuff personally, and uh, I, I don't think you'll ever, yeah, I don't think you'll ever see me attack or call anybody a name over, like, political disagreements unless, like, it's, like, an official account or, like, a politician or something like that. When it comes to people like you, me, or, you know, kind of the associates that we all talk to, there's no reason to get nasty with people. But um, it, it, kind of what you're laying out here is something that I've had difficulties coming to grips with, and I can't say I'm necessarily fully there or not. It could just be the and Kapistan still in my head floating around there. <laughs> but um, I, I, I have hesitancy to vote for to support people who would endorse you know mask mandates or vaccine mandates or transition children gun control or trump after 2020 and i'm not faulting people for doing that and like i said this just could be an idealistic view of politics that i still possess in my head but um do you think that more libertarians perhaps should kind of move away from this idealism and kind of accept the Overton window of morality that kind of is politics where it looks like shit, but like this is the situation you're given. You just got to work with what you got. I am stoked to tell you guys about the show's new sponsor. I am now working with MTS Nutrition, which is a brand that I've believed in for a very long time, and they run awesome cells and they have awesome products. So um, I want to tell you about their amazing protein powder, which you're going to ask me how many pounds I have of the protein powder, and the answer is all of them. So here I got red velvet cake, 25 grams of protein, and they have the amino acids and everything on there, 59 servings. Peanut butter fluff, uh, fluffernutter, 26 grams of protein, and then also the chocolate chip cookie, which literally has real pieces of chocolate chip cookie in there. So 27 grams of protein, 180. As I've talked about on the show, getting your protein in is very, very important. So make sure you hit that link below and purchase your protein powder through MTS Nutrition. Boom! Yes. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite lines from Klaus Rinn is that... Uh, Idealism leads to killing, <laughs> basically, <laughs> is uh, how he put it. Um, I think idealism is immoral, actually. I mean, wrong. Um, so I do. We have to. We have to deal with the situation that it is, and you know, fight the war with the soldiers we've got. So that's sort of like <laughs> my view. I think it helps, at least when it comes to like politicians, when you separate yourself um and don't identify with them and just mm -hmm. look at them as just this tool like like oz <laughs> i mean like talk about humiliating he lost you know the fetterman yeah and um i i i didn't vote in the primary actually because mm -hmm. i was i did i just was like oh boy i don't like <laughs> really any of these but to me there is you no know, doubt that Oz would be better on net, probably. That's the other thing. The future is radically uncertain. So we can never make these judgments, um, excuse me, knowing for sure what's going to happen. We just have to 
take educated guesses as to who we think will be less bad on net. Um, and I also, uh, I'm not like a, um, because the marginal vote is meaningless for the large part, I'm not too invested in trying to get people to vote for whoever I think is less bad in any situation. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I think, um, yeah, it's just what we have. And I think, um, a lot of libertarians spend a lot of time, you know, of doing the equivalent of, you know, arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's a, uh, that, that is kind of a funny way to put it, but yeah. Um, like I said, I don't know quite where I sit on this cause I've had now probably close to five or six, uh, probably about five hours worth of, uh, shows laying out, um, people's feelings on strategy as to whether or not they would go with the Libertarian Party or the Republican Party with absolutely phenomenal people from both sides in the situation. And um, like I said, I've never quite settled anywhere. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on the Libertarian Party as a whole? Um, I, I'm, I, I've grown largely disaffected with our state party here. Um, I'm not a registered member anymore but I, I like the people that are in there i just don't know what the long-term plan is to scale right yeah so i also know some people in the pa libertarian party who are phenomenal um and uh, <laughs> it is my view that their talents would be put to a much better use uh entering the republican party sure uh, is the short version yeah i think um just uh yeah i think uh, for various structural reasons we basically have a two-party system and that's here to stay and uh people do a lot of work in the libertarian party that gets nowhere <laughs> and uh, they might get somewhere in the republican party is my thought um, mm -hmm. yeah I, I think it's a fair assessment and um like i said it's something that i kind of kick around a lot and think like uh, well Maybe if they literally took this whole Mises caucus strategy and applied it just to the Republican Party, maybe that would go a lot further. But I mean, you know, obviously we're trying to provide a uh, counterfactual here. So it's it's really, really tough to say. Um, what do you think about the Libertarian Party as a kind of like messaging platform then? And like I said, I'm not necessarily advocating for this, but I'm just kind of curious your thoughts because the idea for them, and I can appreciate this idea, but I can also see where it falls flat, is that you can have someone like a Dave Smith saying the pure Libertarian message to wake people up and hopefully turn them towards a more liberty-minded direction. But um, I guess the one area where I would see harm in that is that some libertarians may be lulled in the sense of complacency, like the ANCAPs who say voting and politicians are violence, and now they're just stuck at home, you know, terminally online. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I guess I'm not a super big fan of that. Um, sure. uh, for one thing, I question uh, <laughs> uh, there are a lot of odd people. Uh, involved in the libertarian party that are more apt to scare people away yeah <laughs> um i mean for example in 2016 i was watching the libertarian presidential candidate debate 
uh, and my grandparents were there with me. Um, like the Libertarian Convention was on, uh, some random guy got up naked on the stage. Mm -hmm. And um, also one of the candidates started talking about like transsexual porn stars. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed, you know, that <laughs> my grandparents are watching this. Um, uh, and uh, also, it's just, um, I guess, uh, part of the thing is, I, I don't, I'm figuring out for myself, I think my own views on messaging are evolving. Because mm-hmm. um, I think people hope there'll be like this mass movement. Um, where everyone will become libertarian. And I guess for various reasons, some of which are, I've just sort of come to implicitly have really some of them, I suppose. I don't ever see that happening, partly Mm -hmm. because most of the population doesn't think ideologically. um, And uh, libertarians are generally sort of nerdy people. I mean, (laughs) basically we fit into a pretty slim demographic profile. And um, I think, uh, like, I like hanging around people who have similar views to me, mm-hmm. but I don't expect, uh, like, anyone else to adopt those views. Mm-hmm. Rather, I, I think for now, at least, my thought is it's best to just argue on issues, like, are an issue-by-issue basis, and we can say, you know, because of our libertarian way of thinking, here's why we argue X, Y, Z. We don't even have to bring that up. We can just argue, you know, this is why we should undertake this policy. Here's how it'll make your life better. Because the average person doesn't care about, you know, uh, some kind of ethical, political, moral framework or something like that. They care like about <laughs> how it know, affects their, their finances yeah. yes exactly um so that's my thoughts i mean i think dave smith is a pretty um sophisticated and coherent speaker mm-hmm. um but i am um, i mean i would say it was bad it would be bad were mm-hmm. he to be the candidate and he subtract votes from ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. were ron DeSantis to be the Republican candidate, I would say that would be bad. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's really interesting. And that's a, that kind of gives a, a nice little pivot to the next thing I wanted to talk with you about. Um, so when it comes to this idea of kind of sticking within the window of what's in the political sphere right now, um, the thing I always wonder is, okay, well, how do things get better? Um, and what's interesting about DeSantis and I don't like his foreign policy record when he was in Congress. Um, he, he, you know, he did vote against Syria or regime change in Syria initially, but then he ultimately kind of buckled. I think when Trump was kind of bombing Syria, um, if I remember correctly. But um, if you look at his the way that he is now, um, he's very much so a leader, and he's not afraid to really punch back and play the left's game the way that they play it. Trump can't do that in the same way right where DeSantis is very very direct and focused Trump's kind of like a hammer in search of a nail as to where DeSantis is more like a, a gun I almost want to say but um the one thing that I've been told is that we should trust him because he's going to be better at appointing people and getting rid of people which I think there's merit to that idea um 
the part where I'm a little less optimistic is once again his relevant past behavior through his congressional record on spying and foreign policy. Um, so I know that's kind of like a loaded question, but what are your thoughts on like how we get to a better place politically, kind of to like a more, you know, a society that values liberty more? through doing that and do you think DeSantis might actually be that kind of guy to lead us that direction um well in terms of a politician leading a very large cultural change I don't think so um I think DeSantis has potential and yes the I forget who uh, there was recently, I think his in Responsible Statecraft uh, piece criticizing DeSantis's record. But alternatively, I believe it was uh, Dan McCarthy wrote sort of a rejoinder. I don't know if he specifically addressed that uh, piece or not, but for where Ron DeSantis is now and um, uh, something I viewed as a very, very positive sign um, I think CPAC was going on or something mm -hmm. when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, and Ron DeSantis was like, gave a speech like the next day or something. He didn't even mention Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So uh, to me, I found that that silence spoke volumes uh, in right. my view. Mm -hmm. But to go back to the culture point of leading towards a more liberty-friendly culture, I think that um, cultural change is uh, very ephemeral. Like <laughs> people have lots of theories of cultural change and I'm not sure I've ever seen one that I exactly fully subscribe to. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there's the war of ideas, you know, uh, the structure of production of ideas is how some people argue it, you know. We need the uh, pure intellectuals putting out theory, then the secondhand dealers of ideas who translate that theory into mm -hmm. op-eds and things that, uh, you know, regular Joes can more or less understand and persuades them. Um, and I think, you know, ideas are very powerful. I think, um, I mean, I think ultimately the most effective way to change society is the least exciting, which is to change yourself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's uh, really, it's in many different philosophies, but there's like this Confucian uh, a sort of story. Uh, basically, the man who orders himself, this leads to order within his household, within his family, within his community, within mm -hmm. his workplace, rippling out of order that begins with the individual ordering himself, which is extremely difficult and not fun and sexy, like protesting or something like that. Um, right. So I think ultimately social change begins with personal change. And that is not, I don't think, a very easy process. That yes. Is, can be it's different for every person i would say yeah yeah i completely agree with that and that's um hopefully what people have been able to kind of take away from the show is that um i always try to put out good information when it comes to the health sphere to hopefully give people the tools so that way they can kind of enable themselves to make that positive change in their lives um the, the interesting part that might that i would give pushback on the whole cultural deal is that um 
Trump was a really cultural figure where you hadn't seen a base, like a political base really light up like Trump was able to do for his base. Um, and it's really something interesting. And it's really something that I think anybody who's looking to dabble in politics or talk about politics should dabble with, where you have people wearing this, you know, make America great again hat. And, um, you know, in the, the Butler rally here in Pennsylvania, there's 50,000 people. I mean, I know where Butler is. That's the middle of bumfuck nowhere. And you had 50,000 you, you 50, people in a freaking field that my band played in. And we sold out, you know, in a thousand car show opening for Steel Panther in 2020. And then, you know, a couple weeks or a couple months later, he's, you know, once again, 50,000 people. There's something really, really remarkable about that. And it didn't seem like he quite had the same pizzazz. So actually, I think that kind of goes to your Machiavelli point earlier where, he was a tool, and now that his time is up, it's done. So I, I know it's a little bit of a long tangent, but if you have any thoughts on that, go ahead and uh, feel yeah, free yeah. Add. I mean, um, I definitely agree. Like, so I would say I don't think Trump necessarily changed many people's minds. Whereas, uh, I uh, there's a term I can't exactly recall what uh, specifically it's called, but this idea basically um, that people have lots of people have a view whatever the view is view x but it's not acceptable to talk about it mm -hmm. and then there's some kind of trigger and then it's suddenly like it seems oh all these people suddenly think x they've thought x for a long time mm -hmm. it's just something happened where they felt for whatever reason okay enough to express it so I think Trump's success was channeling it in. He definitely did something in terms of cracking everything wide open. I mean, he's changed politics immensely, I would say. I mean, um, uh, he has especially made it, uh, brought it into, you know, the mainstream and on the right to question foreign policy, uh, the, the foreign policy status quo. He definitely did that. I wouldn't say he led to those changes necessarily though i think he probably did bring some people along mm -hmm. but um yeah he definitely played a huge role there but i think it still was lots of other things were happening under the surface that he was i don't know smart enough or lucky enough <laughs> mm -hmm. whatever happened he was able to take advantage of it yeah so i definitely think there is yes the personality matters immensely too it's not like you could have taken out trump and put in Mitt Romney or something. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah there, there wouldn't have been people lining up to go see Mitt Romney. There would not have been 50,000 people to go see Mitt Romney here in, uh, you know, Butler, Pennsylvania. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about today was um, kind of your views on foreign policy, because we butted heads a little bit and you're way more educated on this kind of stuff than I am. But um, I, I always want to talk to people who have a different perspective just to see where there might be holes in my mental ship here. So um, where would you put yourself as a foreign policy person? Because I believe I heard you describe yourself as a foreign policy realist. And if I have that incorrect, please correct me. That's correct. Yes. Okay, I good. consider myself a realist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, um, yeah. Okay. Just elaborate on what that is. I apologize. Right. Yes. Yeah. So um Surrealism is a school of thought in uh, international relations. It's a theory for trying to understand how the world works. And it does not claim to be a 
perfect theory that adequately describes all of reality all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just a theory that is pretty good most of the time at understanding how states behave. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the, um, so realism you might contrast with liberal internationalism is probably the main uh, school of thought that governs the current foreign policy. Realism, in contrast to idealism, is very focused on, so, excuse me, on, uh, on the nature of the international system, rather the structure of the international system. Uh, it's called structural realism. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that structure incentivizes states, how they should behave. And um, uh, of the subset, I'm pretty much what would be called an offensive realist, mm -hmm. uh, of which John Mearsheimer, who some people might be familiar with, is sort of the father of his book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics is sort of the, the Bible of offensive realism. And what offensive realism argues is, is that the structure of the international system incentivizes and pushes states to acquire power. Now, we're not talking about like Colombia or uh, Belgium <laughs> or uh, small places. We're mostly concerned with great powers. And great powers, according to offensive realism, they want to acquire more power. And why do they want to do this? They want to do this because of the radically uncertain nature of the world. We can never know for sure what another state is going to do. And therefore, it is best to maximize your own power so as to be able to defend your national interests. Mm -hmm. This is another key point that realists emphasize a lot, is national interest. Mm -hmm. uh, liberal internationalists uh, think it is our job to, I mean, nothing, no stone uh, should be overturned in the whole world that uh, is not, there, there's, there's nothing in the world that's beyond our concern, basically. Mm -hmm. Whereas realists, I mean, we would say most of what we do in foreign policy is superfluous, uh, meaningless. It is of no consequence to America's security or our national interests. Mm -hmm. And um, so a lot of uh, uh, every prominent realist other than Henry Kissinger was opposed to the Iraq war, for example. Um, mm -hmm. so there's this weird thought that like realists are bloodthirsty or something. Realists are much more aware of the uh, potential negative consequences of war and are much more uh, the don't want to go on all these adventures basically mm -hmm. that we would argue weaken the united states um so um that, that was sort of me a meandering explanation um <laughs> uh, if you have any more specific questions or want me to expand on any point yeah no, 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 that's fine um i, I just kind of wanted to have you elaborate on that because i, I 
feel I'm pretty good with it, but just in case the listeners don't know, and just so that way we're kind of speaking and walking in the you know walking in the same direction. So um, I, I want to talk to you about the three kind of main targets of the regime as I see it now. Um, the on, lowest on the list seems to be Iran. Number two is China or um, is Russia, and then number one seems to be China. At least this is the way that they lay it out. I know two is Russia, number one is China, and there's been a lot of kind of like saber rattling with Iran, and there's also a lot of stuff kind of going on in the South Americas that um, seems relatively like it's kind of gone by the wayside now. But um, I know during the Trump years there's a lot of stuff going on down there. But um, we we can maybe do that another time, or you know maybe the, if you have any opinions on that after we kind of cover these three, then you can elaborate. Um, so what's the foreign policy realist perspective on Iran? Because um, for the last thirty years we've been told they're going to make a nuke and. Voila, there's zero evidence that they're going to make a nuke. They enrich uranium, basically. Um, they're at 60% now, I believe, and they would need to get to 90% in order to make a nuke. And they've always complied with pretty much every single time that we've asked them to, you know, go through inspections or just anything to get sanctions relief. So um they really want to get back into the Iran deal, but I know Biden has had this maximum pressure campaign on them essentially to, you know, just beat the living life out of them. And they even started to roll back and say, hey, will you just say your return to the Iran deal for Biden's administration? You don't have to promise it forever just for this. And they still rejected that. So I know that's probably a little bit of editorializing on my part, but um, what is your perspective on what the U.S. should do when it comes to Iran? And do you think there's foreign interests kind of there? Uh, yeah, so um, one thing realists, in my view, are much better at than the rest of the blob is uh, being able to to walk in other people's shoes, as it were, <laughs> because with this emphasis on national interests, we're able to better see what, why, you know, why country X might be doing why. Is it because they're just evil or is it because they have some interest? John Mearsheimer has a funny line that uh, I think he said, like, if I was Iran's national security advisor, we'd already have a nuke. <laughs> um, it's uh, entirely understandable to me why Iran would want a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. I uh, don't think that it's just great for there to be wild nuclear prol proliferation, but I don't think our efforts to stop it have been fruitful at all. I don't really, personally, I'm not convinced that Iran is of much consequence to the United States. Mm -hmm. People might argue um, that uh, access to oil plays a role, but uh, I mean, oil is globally a, a globally priced commodity. Um, and there's also studies, um, Eugene Goltz authored a very large, well, he has a shorter version, but then there's a very large report on basically arguing Iran could not successfully close the Strait of Hormuz, mm -hmm. um, things like that. Uh, I just, uh, Iran's on the other side of the planet. They're not, I don't see them as a threat to us. I, I don't see much national interest in being concerned with them. I mean, they're all, the regime, awful, bad regime. Uh, I wouldn't want to live there. It seems like a beautiful country, great culture, but uh, awful government. Uh, you know, I wish them well, but it's not uh, Iran, I don't consider very important to U.S. national interest. Okay. All right. Well, then I, I um, 
Yeah, I don't think we have any disagreement there. I completely agree. It's largely been overblown, and I think that's also because of a uh, certain small country over there that has a lot of influence <laughs> over uh, over a lot of the politicians here in the U.S. that um, incentivizes them to kind of saber rattle and you know kind of live a little bit under their thumb. Um, yeah, but I mean, yes, I mean, I agree that they're like John Mearsheimer wrote a book, The Israel Lobby. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the reality is that by the nature of America being an immigrant country, there are diaspora lobbies for everything under the sun. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's Iranian expats are some of the most neocon Mm -hmm. uh, aggressive people. They, I mean, I've literally seen like Iranian expats say, you know, we should be bombing Iran. (laughs) Um, And it's similar. Armenia, Armenian uh, diaspora lobbies the U.S. government to do things for Armenia. I mean, it's basically everywhere. And I think, of course, but uh, you can't also ignore the the hostage crisis and everything that bruised America's ego and whatnot. So that Mm -hmm. also plays a role. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Um, So kind of moving on from there, um, you wrote a paper on the difference between Ukraine and Taiwan, but um, what are your thoughts on Ukraine? And I'll, I'll give kind of like my brief thoughts that it's going to be the standard libertarian take. You know, essentially, we shouldn't be there. Um, they're on the other side of the world. We have no concerns with them. And Russia, as far as I can tell, and once again, you could disagree and tell me I'm wrong. I'm, I'm very curious about your thoughts. But um, I don't think Russia has the desire nor – well, they may have the desire, but – they don't have the capability to go, you know, on this reignite the whole Soviet Union. I don't think they have that capability um, because they're getting their asses handed to them by Ukraine, who granted the rest of the world's pretty much propping them up. But, um, you know, Ukraine's one sixteenth the size of the United States and Russia's having a hard time just kind of maintaining where they're at Ukraine. So um, in my mind, what would be best is negotiations and trying to, you know, cease all um, you know, war efforts there and kind of bring everybody to the negotiating, negotiating table. And then the areas in Ukraine that are ethnically Russian and voted to be part of Russia should be given to Russia. And then, you know, everybody kind of, you know, walks away, goes home, whoever declares victory, declares victory. And then the U S stays out of it. Um, once again, whatever your opinion is, I'm curious. Um, yeah, just, just what's your thoughts surrounding that? Oh boy, yeah. So, um, uh, in probably twenty late twenty fourteen or early twenty fifteen, John Mearsheimer had a journal article come out blaming the U.S. for or blaming the West for the situation in Ukraine way back when when Russia seized Crimea. I largely agree with his analysis, more or less. And I would note very carefully here: this is not the same as giving moral sanction to what Russia has done. But from my perspective, it is makes sense what Russia is doing. Yeah, I Uh, I think that's everybody's take on that. You can argue their execution is has much to be desired. Um, (laughs) But uh, I mean, the war is horrible. Uh, We're one of the, you know, largest, most violent conflicts in recent history uh ukraine is going to have a very bad winter Uh, i mean it's going to be truly a lot of suffering there and i pray for peace and whatnot i think a negotiated settlement is best um 
but yeah, I, I do not think the U.S. has any national interest in who controls Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, part of the issue is that we're a member of NATO. Uh, long story short, we should leave NATO. We don't need to be in NATO. <laughs> um, uh, that's tying us down here. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm concerned <laughs> at our level of involvement, which is mm-hmm. very obvious and open um, and could lead to something very, very bad. Um, I do not want us to give Ukraine any more money. Um, Ukraine is the second most corrupt country in Europe after Russia. Um, The country itself is very divided. There's all kinds of disputes um, uh, between the various sorts of what you might, how you might group the population. And um, I don't, yeah, it's just not, our job. I mean, uh, this is, I guess, might be leading into your next question of U.S. Sure. views on Russia. But if I viewed Russia as a threat to the U.S., then I would say, uh, yeah, we should just keep funneling money and weapons to Ukraine so they can die on our mm-hmm. behalf. I mean, is <laughs> is the reality of it? Sure. But because I don't think Russia is the threat that warrants this, I think it's our subsidizing of Ukraine. I mean, it's understandable why the Ukraine Ukrainians feel the way they do about, mm-hmm. you know, the countries being invaded. Um, but I think it, it is immoral on our part, actually, not only from the aspect of it's against our national interests, but also we're facilitating, you know, tens of thousands of people being killed for not much reason. I would yeah. Say. Okay. All right. Well, then the final thing that I wanted to ask you about, and this is kind of where I've read a lot of your work, and I think we may have some disagreement, but um, I'm very open to any information that I don't currently have and could change my mind on is the China and Taiwan situation. So um, I'll give you my bout and kind of my thoughts. And I'm curious, once again, what your rebuttal will be. So um, when it comes to Taiwan, a lot of people state like the chips... And when you think about China going after Taiwan, um, I think even you wrote about this in your paper, is that Taiwan's a very defensible island where it'd be very, very difficult for China to go over and invade Taiwan because of the the way that um, Taiwan is geographically with their coast. Um, It would have to be, if I remember correctly, I think it's like mostly an air invasion, or even if you were to do amphibious, it'd be very, very difficult. Um, So let's say China were to completely take Taiwan. I don't think it really matters because China is one of the most globally dependent economies in the world. They depend on a lot of exports or a lot of imports, I'm sorry, to kind of sustain themselves. So in my mind, it doesn't seem like it would be very smart of them to say, all right, well, screw you guys. We're going to nationalize the chips and nobody else can have them. Um their military, I'm not quite as informed on, but from what I understand, it's a lot of stuff that looks really threatening, but isn't really all that threatening. Their age demographics, um, you're going to have a bunch of 40-year-olds if there were some draft over in China that would come over here 
um, just the, the idea of a bunch of 40 year old diabetic Chinese people coming over to the shores of California seems a little ridiculous. And um, the fentanyl stuff I've heard a lot about, um, they clamped down on that in 2019, as far as I understand. And then the other thing I've heard people say is TikTok is going to cause this cultural revolution or is terrible for children, which I don't think it's good. But um, so there's people saying it's spyware. But as of a few months ago, they actually started storing the data from TikTok um, in a server here in the U.S. through um, a company called Oracle. So I know I threw a lot at you, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm really curious about what your thoughts are on Taiwan. I read your paper in the takeaways. So um, what do you think I got wrong? What do you think libertarians get wrong? And what's your kind of thesis on how the U.S. should react to China? Yeah, so um, my views on China are a bit nuanced. Um, and before we talk about Taiwan, we have to address my views of China in general. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the main, as I mentioned before, you know, uh, principles, assumptions of realism is the radical, radically uncertain nature of the future. Sure. So there are numerous reasons to doubt the rise of China. They have so many problems. A really great book that <laughs> chronicles them in just massive detail is um, Unrivaled by Michael Beckley. I've heard about that book. I got to get it. It's superb. It's really great. And it basically contrasts the U.S. to China. The book actually helped white pill me just about life in general, <laughs> okay. uh, which is definitely not the author's intention, I would say, right. but it's just like, wow, here in America, we have, we have it so good. <laughs> just on every conceivable metric, really. Sure. Geography, we're so blessed. Uh, wealth beyond, you know, our wildest dreams, yada, yada, yada. Um, and China, many problems. However, we and I would say this applies to Russia as well, but I think they'd have much, much, much more to uh, to catch up compared to China. We don't know what the future holds. There could be, especially, uh, technological changes that could, down the road, lead to China's, you know, ascendance. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it will happen. I mean, it seems unlikely at this point. I mean, the country is such a mess. Um, immense amounts of pollution, horrible uh, demographics, um, and whatnot. But the demographics, uh, this is something I can most uh, conceivably see uh, being fixed by technology down the road via artificial looms, um, which is a technology that within the next hundred years seems it's not, I mean, who knows what will happen, radically uncertain, but it's within the realm of possibility that, uh, I mean, uh, that China could literally just genetically engineer and grow whatever population it needs. Yeah, to, well, to your I mean, point, yeah, that does sound crazy, but um, uh, you're seeing stuff on Twitter now where they're talking about this stuff. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wouldn't even say a hundred years. I think you're spot on actually. Yeah, so it's just sort of, uh, we don't know what will happen. So mm -hmm. given that we don't know what will happen, how should we act? And so this is where we get to Taiwan and uh, where my views are rather, uh, 
I'd say, a little bit different than the, the main two views. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, for your listeners, uh, I authored a white paper that was published by the John Quincy Adams Society called um, uh, Victory Without Battle, I think, um, that just made an argument for sort of what U.S.-Taiwan strategies should look like. And in that paper, I sort of present a lot of data on what this, the actual situation is. And it is not, uh, the, the way some people talk, you would think China could invade Taiwan tomorrow or something at any moment. This is right. not true. The Chinese military itself uh, believes there are only two windows every year where conditions in the Taiwan Strait, it would have to be a mostly amphibious invasion, are uh, uh, calm enough. Uh, it's uh, sort of uh, Mar around March, early April, and I think um, late September, October. What's up, everybody? Um, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about the show's sponsors. Um, we are brought to you by Element T Electrolytes. I've been using this stuff for years, and what I've honestly found is that if I didn't have electrolytes before some kind of cardio, and sometimes even before workouts, that my workout performance, or definitely cardio performance, would suffer greatly. Um, Sodium is responsible for every single movement pretty much in your entire body. and let's say you drink a lot of caffeine, like I like to do, then um, maybe it is a good idea, like I do every single morning, um, put some LMNT chocolate electrolytes um, there in your coffee to get a little bit more sodium, potassium, and uh, magnesium in your coffee, so that way whatever diuretic effect you get from the caffeine is pretty much diluted by the fact that you put chocolate salt in it. Um, also, it tastes really, really good. Get some uh, chocolate creamer, hazelnut creamer, even coconut, uh, mix that all up it tastes really really good so uh yeah make sure you drop by go to drinklmnt.com slash in liberty and health and uh pick you up some electrolytes today all right guys thanks mm -hmm. so the other thing is that china itself believes it would require a million men to invade taiwan taiwan is one of the most if not the most defensible locations on earth there, uh, less than 10% of the island of Taiwan is suitable for landings. The number of beaches that are suitable for large-scale amphibious landings has gone down over time because the Taiwanese have been geoengineering them for like 70 years now. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, <laughs> uh, the amount of logistical uh, details and work that would go into preparing for this invasion would make D-Day look like planning a picnic. Um, <laughs> and one of the uh, most relevant facts is that due to the li very limited number of landing zones, uh, Taiwan would very easily be able to outnumber any Chinese invaders um, within the first 24 hours of an invasion. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the general rule of thumb is like a three to one ratio for offense to defense, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, the you know, Getting into more technical things, the Chinese Navy does not have the firepower needed to adequately suppress beach defenses. Um, 
I could just go on and on and on. There are so many uh, details as to why this invasion would be very complicated. I mean, just flat out right now, China does not have, if with China's current capacity, where nothing was sunk, no planes were shot down, they could transport a, less than 30,000 troops on the first day of the invasion. Wow. Okay. And uh, it's generally estimated the entire world would know the invasion was going to happen about a month beforehand, just mm -hmm. given that China would be massing huge uh, amounts of material and troops and whatnot <laughs> across the strait. Right. Um, Taiwan can theoretically field 2.5 million troops. They do have problems with their reserves, um, which I talk about in the paper that needs reform. But theoretically, I mean, they could have hundreds of thousands of people on the beach on the first day. Mm -hmm. um, so I argue Taiwan is capable of, if not deterring invasion, which I think China is potentially possible of preventing China from ever attempting to invade in the first place. If that were to fail, I would say Taiwan has a very good shot of defending itself, assuming that they don't continue to free ride off the US, assuming we will come in and save them, which they openly admit they think will happen. I mean, there's lots of polling mm -hmm. where they ask, would you fight to defend Taiwan if it was invaded? The majority say, yes, I would fight to defend Taiwan. And then they say, but Japan, excuse me, and the U.S. will swoop in and it'll be a short war. So, yeah, well, you know. to, to to their point, though, Biden has came out multiple times and said that we will militarily oh, defend Taiwan. Yes, it's they, they say it's a gaff, but uh, I mean, it, you don't gaff four times and then when pressed on it, gaff again. So I. Um, yes, so, yes. Sorry, they but, have yeah. lots of reason to think we'll come in. But here's, here's <laughs> another thing which I talk about in the paper. Mm -hmm. It would be a disaster for the United States. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it would be primarily a naval war 6,000 miles away on the other side of the planet. Right. Um, think tanks in D.C. have war-gamed scenarios where within like the first uh, 36 hours or whatever, uh, Chinese missile strikes would have sunk every U.S. vessel in port in Japan, knocked out all, all of our air force in Japan, uh, and knocked out all command and logistical mm -hmm. facilities. Um, the U.S. Navy is already at its repair capacity, and we are at peace. Uh, it's, this is sort of crazy to think about. <laughs> you know, we're maxed out now at peacetime. How are we going to be fixing, you know, our warships on the other side of the planet. Um, mm. And also the state of the Navy is just awful right now. It's right. become a floating bureaucracy. Um, I mean, uh, a, the bonnet, the, a, a U.S. naval vessel literally just burned up <laughs> uh, <laughs> because of an on-ship arson. And the report found like something like 70% of the ship's fire suppression systems were not like in, they were like in maintenance mode or something. There was all kinds of flammable material yeah. piled around. Uh, there's been a number of uh, collisions <laughs> where naval vessels have just run into giant ocean liners. And this is often attributed to overwork and poor morale. And um, I mean, in my 
I sort of, uh, you, you mentioned my piece, It's in Law and Liberty, where I discuss how Ukraine is, I mean, uh, yeah, how Ukraine's not the same as Taiwan, because when the war started, everyone was like, oh, goodness, Taiwan's next. Uh, I have, there's a hyperlink to this hilarious picture where this guy is like, you can always tell which ships are the U.S. ships in joint maneuvers with other countries, because ours are always covered in rust. Um, <laughs> so... I think charging in to defend Taiwan would be a disaster. And can you imagine, I mean, there are 5,000 sailors on an aircraft carrier. Can you imagine if an aircraft carrier went down with, you know, all or most hands, 5,000 people killed in one day, 5,000 Americans? Yeah, you'll, you'll have people rallying behind the troops like that. The country would, uh, I mean, war would, it, it would war fervor would grip grip the country um yeah. and uh so my view is that we should it is in america's interest for taiwan to be de facto independent mm-hmm. because china could potentially become a threat in the future i don't think that that does not necessarily translate into we should defend taiwan I think it is in our interest to aid Taiwan, especially by, you know, selling them weapons. I mean, I'm all for selling Taiwan oodles of weapons, um, not whatever they want. I talk about that some in the paper, but sure. um, uh, tailored arm sales, various ways of facilitating them defending themselves. Cause I think it is in our, our favor for Taiwan to, remain as a check on china's power Mm -hmm. now where where my sort of view is different than a lot is some people are like we must defend taiwan to the death Mm -hmm. uh and then other people are like uh who cares uh i mean some people have uh uh, criticized me for thinking we should sell weapons to taiwan Mm -hmm. um which uh, i i disagree with i think we should sell them weapons. We should encourage them to defend themselves. I even would be fine with training Taiwanese troops, forces uh, in the U.S. Um, but I think we should stay away from Taiwan itself. And um, yeah, that's the short version, I suppose. <laughs> no, okay. Well, then there's actually a lot less disagreement than I thought. Okay. So um, I'm glad you laid all that out. And um yeah, I, like I said, I really don't see too, too much I disagree with. The only area where I'd be concerned is um, Russia seeing – or I'm sorry, not Russia, Jesus um, – China seeing as a provocation that we're selling them weapons and supporting their independence because um, they've stated multiple times that they see um, Taiwan declaring their independence as a red line. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Right. Yeah, so this is an important – point to clarify a note i said de facto independence because mm. they're de facto an independent country mm. uh i would not support and also the uh, even biden's uh most recent national security strategy explicitly says we do not support a taiwanese declaration of independence um mm. i mean we're you know king zach in charge <laughs> It'd be made very clear to the Taiwanese, you do that, you're on your own. Um, <laughs> and it's even, it's, this is an annoying thing 
um, I will see people just, you know, on social media, we should just recognize Taiwan as an independent country. And it's like the Taiwanese themselves are very divided on this question. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's a hot button political issue within Taiwan. Um, and in fact, polling shows there's a decrease in the number of people who said they'd fight to defend Taiwan, depending on the reason for the invasion. Mm -hmm. If China just invaded, more people say they would defend than said they would defend if China invaded because Taiwan declared independence. Um, okay. Yeah, so regarding China not liking us selling weapons, uh, on the one hand, it just comes down to tough cookies. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the U.S. is a sovereign country, and I'm not in favor of selling weapons to Ukraine uh, or let alone giving them weapons because there's no national interest, U.S. national interest at stake. Mm -hmm. uh, and in geopolitics, regarding geopolitics, you know, it's um, ideally, excuse me, Russia would be working with us <laughs> regarding containing China. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like 10 years ago, people were writing articles about like how bizarre and strange it is that Russia and China are cooperating. I mean, they had border disputes for decades. I mean, in the 80s, they were, <laughs> there's this island in the Amur River that both sides were like shelling intensely and everything. Um, they on paper have resolved all border disputes, but the tension is still there. They're not natural geopolitical uh, friends. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, but uh, I would say that China will complain no matter what we do. I mean, China, China this is, uh, and to get, also, uh, just to go back a little bit to the threat of China, uh, with China's economic, increased economic power comes an increased ability to affect our lives here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you, you talked about China invading U.S. It's impossible. I mean, you, you would need to be basically a, a Eurasian hegemon, mm -hmm. like a super Hitler to like realistically invade the United States, which is nowhere on the horizon. Um, however, we have a lot of evidence of China interfering in our liberties here at home. Back in uh, 2019, I believe it was, um, there's the whole NBA scandal mm -hmm. and the uh, Blizzard games and stuff. Hollywood censoring movies so they can get into the Chinese market. This happened, I think, in 2017, probably. Um, some poor guy who had the unenviable job of doing customer service, or I think Marriott Hotels, mm -hmm. on Twitter. He apparently, like, just liked this tweet that, um, like, under his, you know, Marriott account of, like, some Tibet group was like, thank you, Marriott Hotels, because apparently on some map somewhere, like, Tibet was its own place. Mm -hmm. That guy was fired because of Chinese outrage. An American was fired from his job. And um, there's also the fear of academic influence, Confucius centers, things like that. Um, so, uh, I mean, 
China will take whatever we give it uh, in terms of com- if we just give in to their complaints. The, the key thing is, is to have be prudent. Mm-hmm. It would be it's one thing if we were to say, Taiwan, we recognize you as independent versus selling them weapons. It's sort of the same thing with um, our freedom of navigation exercises where we sail ships through land, uh, areas of the sea that China claims. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, yeah, I don't like provoking China, but the United States is a sovereign country. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we it's fine to exercise the freedom of the seas, basically. Um, so, I mean, this would be an extreme example that wouldn't happen. It's one thing like to sell Taiwan a nuke or something. Right? <laughs> it's another thing to sell them drones and tanks, although I don't really think we should sell them tanks. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, miss, you know, anti-aircraft batteries and all that sort of stuff. That's one thing. It's just a, a, a question of degrees. Mm-hmm. and reasonableness of course china is going to complain but we have to see things from their perspective and see actually how big an issue is it of course they don't want us to do it mm-hmm. but lots of people in our lives do things we don't want them to do but we tolerate it up to a certain point so. right okay so um i guess the last thing um i, I kind of want to get a little bit more um to have you elaborate on is what do you think are the major U.S. interests in Taiwan? Because uh, I, the main thing you hear is the chips. Um, no, no. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay, I'm sure there's more that I just am not aware of. So, um, you know, what is the major U.S. interest in Taiwan? Yeah, it's not chips. I wouldn't say it's anything related to commerce or exports okay. or anything like that. Sure. Um, even if uh, I mean Taiwan were to sink into the ocean. I mean, it'd be quite inconvenient <laughs> for a while, but uh, I mean, they can build chip factories. Chip factories aren't like a mine or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and even rare earth metals, which is often something pointed out with China. I mean, China supplies a vast uh, percentage of the world's rare earth metals. Mm-hmm. It's just that's where they're dug up, partially because it's so cheap there because they have no, I mean, they don't care if they pollute everything. Um, but I mean, there's rare earth metal deposits all over that could be harvested. It'd just take a while to dig the mines and whatnot, but the market would adjust. The interest with Taiwan, as I see it, um, so within sort of uh, international relations, like geography, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. there's what's called the two island chains in East Asia. So the first island chain is basically from Japan down to Taiwan, down to the Philippines. The second island chain is like Guam um, and uh, those other tiny islands. Um, and China's, uh, China's explicitly said, I mean, John Mearsheimer talks about this all the time. Their goal, like if they could get whatever they want, would be to push the U.S. out of the first island chain and out of the second island chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and Taiwan is uh, an important, uh, Taiwan is, hor- uh, chi- Taiwan helps hem China in, as it were, um, in East Asia. If Taiwan were to, you know, be conquered by China, which again, I don't think is likely at all, it's not the end of the world, but it's just one less problem for China. 
Um, whereas now it's a major problem. And it's a major problem in several regards. One is the geostrategic problems, but it's also a domestic problem um, in that uh, to some degree, you could argue that the, there are, are large segments of the Chinese population that are far, far more uh, 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 war crazy <laughs> than the, the Chinese leadership. The Chinese mm -hmm. leadership recognizes how what a dangerous gamble invading Taiwan would be. Could be, if it ends in complete disaster, it could have huge destabilizing effects. Um, but uh, there are people pestering the regime to, you know, we must proclaim Taiwan. I mean, China, it's always very dangerous to for political leadership to rally uh, sort of hyper-nationalism. And I think uh, just as an aside, this is actually an issue Russia faces uh, where Russia doesn't have sort of a unifying ideology at the moment. They don't have communism and the, the current Russian ruling class does not want to uncork the bottle of mm -hmm. Russian nationalism. China ha has rallied Russian nationalism, I mean, <laughs> Chinese nationalism. <laughs> and so um, uh, there's uh, one aspect of the conflict in the Taiwan Strait is called gray zone tactics. Uh, you'll see, well, this is another thing people freak out about is, is uh, Chinese jets, like fighter jets entering the uh, Taiwanese uh, air defense uh, identification zone, I think mm -hmm. it's called. And people act like there's Chinese fighter jets buzzing over Taipei 101. This is not the case at all. They're always way out at sea. Um, this is actually healthy and good. It pro these uh, incursions provide a, 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 like a, a, a steam outlet uh, for Chinese nationalism. It, it, it's an, uh, an excuse the Chinese leadership can say, look, we're, you know, doing this and look how angry it's made the U.S. and blah, blah, blah. Really nothing is happening. And the Taiwanese then scramble their fighter jets and then nothing happens. I mean, of course, it's not without risk. Something, some accident could happen and it'd be a disaster. But right. uh, uh, this gray zone incursions, I think, are just the best we can hope for in terms of trying to let out the steam of Chinese nationalism over Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, all right. Well, yeah, that's uh yeah. Like I said, I, I don't think we have an insane amount that we uh, just, I, in fact, I really don't know of much disagreement other than um, I, I don't see China as a crazy big threat. And it seems like you kind of agree that like, a lot of it really, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, like their capabilities are extremely limited by the way that their government and demographics are. And that makes the event of anything of Taiwan happening um, a lot less likely. Yes, I think, um, I mean, we, we, we're getting a glimpse now of all these protests and rioting in China. Mm -hmm. That actually, I mean, is... Um, uh, just real briefly, uh, I mentioned before, China's like, yeah, we'd need about a million men to complete the invasion of Taiwan. Mm -hmm. uh, half of the Chinese military is already occupied patrolling its vast, I forget, 12 or 14,000 mile border, which is contested uh, sometimes violently with uh, 
almost all of its neighbors, notably India right. and Vietnam. Yep. Mm -hmm. The rest are uh, keeping public order in their major cities. Wow. Um, this has always been, even just historically, a problem for China is it's so big, it requires vast resources to keep order. Right. And they no longer publish. Michael Beckley talks about this in Unrivaled. They don't publish uh, statistics on basically civil disturbances anymore. <laughs> but between like the early 90s and when they stopped in the early teens, it just uh, had increased drastically. And I mean, we can see with COVID, <laughs> you know, seems quite clear it's uh, still happening. So yeah. um, it, China is not some unified place. It requires a lot of resources to keep order. Mm -hmm. And were, you know, tens of thousands of Chinese conscripts to, you know, drown in the Taiwan Strait uh, while, you know, Taiwanese missiles were raining down all along the coast, it would be quite a, I mean, destabilizing event to say the least. I mean, some people are like, oh, good. I mean, that would actually would be worrisome. I mean, who, what would happen to their nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But they have lots of reasons. It, they, something would have to be very, they could potentially, if things do get worse in China, there could be mm -hmm. a gamble to save the regime. <laughs> We're going to invade Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But as long as prudence prevails, it's so hard to imagine them invading, given what a gamble it would be, in my view, which, of course, can be wrong. So sure. uh, given the uncertain, radically uncertain nature of the future. But uh, that's just how I see things. OK, yeah. Well, this was a absolutely fantastic conversation, Zach. I really, really enjoyed it. It was very, very informative. I know I learned a lot. Um you know, hopefully it was mutually enjoyable for you oh, and yes. the listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, where can everybody find you? Where can everybody find your work? And what do you got going on? Uh, yes. Uh, so you can follow me at Twitter. It's just at Zachary Yost. Um, I uh, write a substack, the Yoast Post, sporadically. And I also, um, as I mentioned, I co-host the War Economy and State podcast with Ryan McMakin at the Mises Institute. I also have my own podcast, The Republic of Azo, um, uh, that people can subscribe to as well if they're interested. That's on YouTube and um, just where most podcasts are hosted. It should be there. Nice. All right, Zach. Well, like I said, I really enjoyed this conversation. And if you've got anything, uh, we'll close her out and I'll see you on the other side. Great. Thanks so much. Of course. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.